Hello and welcome to Take My Advice, I'm not using it. My name's Ollie Henderson and today's episode is the final one of series four of this podcast. And what a great series it's been. In this episode, I am going to be recalling two more of my future work-life newsletters from the last couple of months. The first discusses diversity, equity and inclusion. And the second begins to look forward to how technology will affect work. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks to the thousands of you who have been listening to this series. And you'll hear from me again in September when I will be yet again interviewing some really interesting guests. And we'll be discussing all things work and life. Have a great summer, everyone. Future Work Life number 42. DE and I and why progress doesn't mean perfection. Written on May the 20th, 2021. A fairer, more inclusive society feels instinctively like something we'd all like to see, yet, as we know, it's a complex issue for which there are no quick wins, and this extends to the role of businesses in matters of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I've wondered whether fear of getting it wrong may be inhibiting business leaders from starting the process of making positive changes, and I put this idea to Tamika Curry-Smith in this week's podcast. Until recently, Tamika was Nike's Global Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion, and she now works with a wide variety of businesses as a consultant. As she explained, the best thing to do is treat DEI like any other part of your business. As with marketing or finance, it needs a clear plan with targets and a budget and people accountable for its success. If there's one thing that Peloton's instructors have taught me over the past year, it's that practice makes progress. Likewise, Tamika's succinct observation that progress doesn't necessarily mean perfection was a key takeaway from our conversation. We all have to start somewhere. And while we may never achieve perfection, small changes can gradually add up to something great. So here are three thoughts that might give you the confidence not just to start the process, but to throw your energy into making DEI a core part of your strategy. Not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it's the smart thing to do too. Listening. Tamika discussed the demand she's had from clients over the past year to run listening sessions. They are, as they sound, an opportunity for people from all backgrounds to listen to the experiences of underrepresented and marginalised groups. Because, as she explains, and I quote, the reality is in today's world, the topics they're considered political to one group are called everyday life to others. We were taught growing up that you separate work and home life. You don't bring them together. You come to work and you don't talk about those things that are happening. But the reality is for underrepresented and marginalised groups, There is no separation there. They're living these issues every day and they don't get to leave them at the door when they come to work. It's still with them and they're caring. What they've done historically is carried those burdens in silence and they're over it and they're saying, I'm not willing to do that anymore. So leaders are now being expected to create space for these discussions and also to show some humility, some vulnerability and show some humanity as well by also talking about their own experiences. Organisations take various approaches to unconscious bias training, but this seems like a practical and straightforward approach to breaking down barriers and building empathy in a team. Rather than deal in abstract conversations about the challenges and disadvantages experienced by groups of people, hearing these expressed by your colleagues in their own words humanises the discussion. While there are plenty of people who'd rather avoid these types of conversations altogether, take Basecamp and Coinbase by way of example, the question you should consider is what you have to lose versus what you have to gain. Suppose you were launching into a new market, for example. Would you take the opportunity to research consumers' motivation or try to understand operating challenges in their respective countries? Of course. So why not try to do the same with the people you're working with every day? 
As I wrote in a previous article, open communication is a prerequisite for business success and it's no different with DEI. Talking. Once you kick the process off, it's essential to talk about it. So why do so many companies remain silent? In many cases, it isn't that they're doing nothing. So could it be that they're still worrying that they're not yet doing enough? Irrespective of what stage you're at, Tamika's advice is simply to talk about it more critically. You should also ensure that the internal and external communication of your DEI strategy is aligned. In Nike's case, despite taking a very public stand on social justice issues over recent years, there have been internal questions over the composition of their board and the structure of athlete sponsorship deals. Nike appears to lead the way when it comes to the seriousness with which they take DEI. However, last year, an overemphasis on external comms jarred against the ongoing underrepresentation of minority groups in senior roles and a lack of equity in agreements with female athletes. The answer wasn't to stay quiet on their public support for change, but rather ensure that there was as much focus on their work to improve internal diversity and communicate that more clearly with their people and partners. Once again, progress doesn't necessarily mean perfection, and acknowledging that goes a long way to building trust. Thinking. While most of the conversation around DEI is rightly about fairness, the reality is that team diversity can be a game changer in business success. In Matthew Syed's excellent book, Rebel Ideas, he skillfully outlines the benefits of cognitive diversity to innovation, arguing that cognitive diversity is set to become a key source of competitive advantage and the surest route to reinvention and growth. You might say we're entering the age of diversity. Now, while he's careful to distinguish between demographic and cognitive diversity, the reality is that people's background, upbringing, education and interests all play a part in the way they think. Their lived experience contributes to their outlook and beliefs and how they should approach subjects like problem solving and creativity. All of this explains why it makes business sense to put the objective of creating a diverse and inclusive team foremost in your strategy. Need some evidence to back this up? Well, McKinsey recently studied executive teams in over a thousand large companies in 15 countries and found that the greater the representation, the higher the likelihood of outperformance. Companies with more than 30% of women executives were more likely to outperform companies where this percentage ranged from 10 to 30. And in turn, these companies were more likely to outperform those with even fewer women executives or none at all. A substantial differential likelihood of outperformance, 48% separates the most from the least gender diverse companies. In the case of ethnic and cultural diversity, our business case findings are equally compelling. In 2019, top quartile companies outperformed those in the fourth one by 36% in profitability, slightly up from 33% in 2017 and 35% in 2014. As we have previously found, the likelihood of outperformance continues to be higher for diversity and ethnicity than for gender. So I often talk about why a learning culture is crucial to businesses evolving and innovating, which is why creating an open dialogue about DEI represents an opportunity. While it may initially push you out of your comfort zone, you'll quickly realise the benefits. Please make sure you listen back to the podcast if you'd like to hear more from Tamika Curry-Smith. I'll include it in the show notes. Future work life number 43. AI, decision making and the future of jobs. Written on June 2nd, 2021. When was the last time you made a bad decision? Contrast that with one of the best decisions you've ever made. Can you pinpoint what led to these differences in judgment? Did you rush to the poor decision and carefully consider the one you got right? Or was it just luck? According to Daniel Kahneman, Cass Sunstein and Olivier Sibony, 
Chances are that noisy systems do at least as much damage as bias in this process, contributing towards unwanted variations in your judgments or evaluations and your decisions, your choices. In healthcare, for example, not only is there overwhelming evidence that physicians, when presented with the same evidence, agree on diagnoses only around two thirds of the time, one study showed that when individuals reviewed previous decisions, they disagreed with themselves on up to nine out of 10 occasions. The promise of technology and artificial intelligence in particular is to help mitigate the influence of human factors like tiredness and mood on our judgment. However, all too often in business, the conversation becomes about how clever the technology is rather than the positive outcome of using it. I've had countless conversations with organisations over the past year about technology and data, at the end of which we inevitably come to the mutual conclusion that yes, while both of these are important to business growth, they aren't the critical factor. The desire for companies to shout about their use of artificial intelligence is a fantastic example of this need to attach a fancy sounding acronym to the beginning of a product description. You don't need to look very hard to find the newest technologies presented as a differentiator, often appended with powered by, all of which misses the point about what genuinely makes a difference to a company's fortunes. We've attempted to reframe this debate by pointing out that the critical determinant to success is invariably people. Well, since everyone seems to love an acronym, an organization's HI, human intelligence. Get it? Got it? Good. Now, for the time being, humans remain uniquely placed to apply creativity, critical thinking, and context. Kenneth Kukier, Victor Mayer Schoenberger, and Francis de Vericor make this point with tongue firmly in cheek in their new book, Framers, and I quote, AI may make better decisions than people and steal our jobs, but computers and algorithms cannot frame. AI is brilliant at answering what is asked for. Framers pose questions never before voiced. Computers work only in a world that exists. Humans live in ones they can imagine through framing. As they allude to, when it comes to the future of work, there's a narrative that robots are coming to take their jobs. However, on my recent podcast with Azim Azar, referencing the emergence of e-commerce and specifically Amazon, he pointed out that the demise of many traditional retailers was less about the technology itself more about failures in management, I quote, if you're one of those companies that hadn't, for example, made the switch to multi-channel starting in 1995, when it was apparent that e-commerce was going to be a big thing, then you were going to be all prepared for the changes that were going to come. I'm not sure that's a robotization problem rather than a we were terrible manager style problem, end quote. So while we should be mindful of big tech's disproportionate power, technology in and of itself isn't a threat to jobs. Instead, if harnessed correctly in support of human judgment and in support of human judgment and decision making, it can be the enabler that helps us reimagine work and in the process make it fairer by designing more creative ways of distributing value. Take Statalia, for example, a company that positions itself as a thought leader as a thought leader in AI. Their CEO, Daniel Hume, was recently a guest on Azim's podcast, Exponential View, discussing their bonkers, Azim's words not mine approach to creating a decentralized organization with the aspiration to develop a genuinely meritocratic equitable company satalia uses radical methods to determine employee remuneration and appraise and appraise performance if you work at satalia not only do you choose each and every project you like to work on judgment on your performance and how much you're paid is determined solely by your peers a recipe for disaster i hear you say However, it's already uncovered and overcome the inherent bias that would have previously resulted in unfair employee pay discrepancies. Initially, the company's policy was for each worker to suggest their salary expectations, which the rest of the team would then adjudicate. 
In one case, a female developer set her salary expectations significantly lower than her market value, which was caught and corrected by the system. Now salary setting goes straight out to the crowd. What's most notable is the way they use technology to augment human decision making. As Hume puts it, my hypothesis is that if you give people information, they make good decisions. That's the critical goal. That's what we're trying to use machine learning for, to identify who needs to know what. We will pull in data across Slack, across our Gmail. We'll do surveys as well to help people understand our strategy. We'll then visualize that in a way that helps them use those insights to then make decisions, whether that's decisions about feedback or decisions about salary or decisions about who to hire or not. So we've created this knowledge graph, capturing all this data. And from this knowledge graph, we've surfaced these insights to allow humans to make decisions. End quote. In theory, the benefits of this approach include more autonomy, faster decision making and more accountability, all of which seems fundamentally a good thing. There are, of course, arguments for centralising some functions, which you can read about in an HBR article I linked to in the newsletter. And it's not completely clear that humans even make better decisions the more data we have access to. As another reference article by Marianne Bellotti suggests, I like this Satalia example, though, because it demonstrates the benefits of taking risks to explore how to improve work, which is becoming increasingly decentralised, both geographically and operationally. Now, as a result, new challenges will emerge that demand innovative solutions for allocating resources and determining pay. One significant consideration, for example, will be how to reappraise value creation by workers as our traditional understanding of employment continues to evolve. We've already seen a rapid rise in gig-style work and shorter-term contracts over the past year, for example, and that trend will only continue. The question, therefore, is how soon and how radically we should experiment with redesigning the way we work and how to reward people. Significantly, what role can technology play? In much the same way as those 90s retailers, failing to evolve will be less an example of the technological impact and more a lack of imagination by the people in charge. So my suggestion is to start today. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. I'll be looking forward to bringing you Series 5 in September. Until then, take care.